This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. No matter what you're looking for in a non-alcoholic beer, there's only one name that has it all. Athletic Brewing Co. Full flavor? It's athletic. Huge variety? It's athletic. Award-winning styles you can get online, at the bar, or the grocery store? It's athletic. In fact, when it comes to amazing non-alcoholic beer, there's no question. It's athletic. Ask for it and find out. Go to askforathletic.com to find your closest retailer today. Near beer. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, the White Ship. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And this? And welcome to Rex Factor. Uh, not today reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from elsewhere to Prince mm-hmm. Philip, but instead we are interviewing an historian. We're going to be going back in time a little bit from where we currently are with the consort series, as we are going to be talking to none other than Charles Spencer, or to Earl Spencer, about the White Ship disaster of 1120. Oh my goodness, we're connected to royalty. But that isn't what we're talking to Charles about, because he has a new book out. Well, it's been out for a good year. Oh, is it? Yeah. So when it's new to me, it doesn't mean it's new to everyone else. That is the case. I think it might be newly out in America, though. So if you are listening from America, then it might well be considered newly out. (laughs) Anyway, it's a very very good book. So it's all about, as we'll hear, uh, Henry I and uh, the white ship disaster of 1120 that claimed his uh, son and heir. So let's have a listen to our interview with Charles Spencer. So we are very excited to be joined on the podcast today by the author and historian Charles Spencer to talk about his book, uh, The White Ship. Charles, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's a great pleasure. I love what you do, so I'm delighted to be part of it. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Um, we'll obviously explore the background and the events of uh, the White Ship disaster in more detail, but for people who aren't quite sure or maybe remember the name but can't remember what it is, could you just give a quick summary of what happened to the White Ship and why it's so important in English history? Absolutely. Well, do you know, it's a, it's a part of history that seems not to be taught anymore, so I'm not surprised that probably most people listening won't know about it. But the White Ship was, it's known as the medieval Titanic. And I, I don't want in any way to belittle the terrible loss of the Titanic, but in many ways, the White Ship was a more significant event because it altered history. Uh, the English monarchy was completely upended by this shipwreck. Um, essentially, uh, the King of England was Henry I at this time. He was the fourth and youngest son of William the Conqueror. And although Henry I is our most fertile monarch, I'm claiming that for the Rex factor, (laughs) uh, he had 24 children, of which two were legitimate. Um, the, 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 The point was he only had one legitimate son. And because of various circumstances, uh, Henry I decided not to return from Barfleur in Normandy as victorious king after defeating the French. Uh, in 1120, and he let his son and various other illegitimate children, the great noblemen and noblewomen of uh, of France, uh, well, Normandy and England, uh, got on this ship in huge numbers. And although all of their losses are to be uh, decried, the the, the one that really counted was the sole legitimate male heir to Henry I uh, was a prince called William, and he was among all those who died on board, in fact, just one butcher. He was the one sole survivor out of about 350 people on the white ship. And, you know, it looked like Henry I might have time. He remarried to have a further legitimate sons, uh, but he didn't. He never had any more uh, legitimate children, even though he very quickly remarried his, his first wife having died. And so what this meant was essentially the end of the Norman dynasty, uh, because in fact, the crown was claimed after Henry I died, uh, 15 years after the loss of the white ship, by the one great man who had got off the white ship, actually. He had a, he had a stomach upset. 
And he was King Stephen, who raced across the channel and, and claimed the throne. He was a very ineffective king in his own way. And when he died, a compromise was reached. And the crown was left to Henry I's grandson by a different child, uh, Henry II, and we got the Plantagenets. So because of one shipwreck, uh, 901 years ago, uh, we ended up with a complete change of direction in terms of the history of this country. Yeah, it's incredible, the vagaries of fate, how sort of everything can be so different on just one chance thing, even like you said, see Stephen just having a dodgy stomach. Uh, well, I mean, that that's suspicious, isn't it? <laughs> he becomes king. Did they check him for any uh, <laughs> any drills or anything? Well, there have you know there have been theories that he because he was the one who ultimately benefited, he yeah. might have had something to do. But I looked. If you look at the passenger list of those who went down, it was his much loved sister, lots of his cousins, and his great friends, and also given Henry the first fertility, it was a bit of a punt. Uh, not to expect him to have another legitimate <laughs> child at the time. So I, I think Stephen, and also Stephen was deeply stupid. I don't think he'd have thought of it. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, we have a laptop named Stephen because our first recording that went completely down the pan was recording King Stephen. And he was just generally, I found, really annoying. And so that laptop from that point on was always called <laughs> Stephen. Perfect. So before we go into it in more detail, something that was interesting, actually, the, you've also uh, published uh, various other history books. The ones you've done before being things like The Battle of Blenheim, uh, Charles I, Charles II, Rupert of the Rhine. They're all sort of, I guess, of 17th, 18th century, whereas with this we're going all the way back to the 12th century. Was did, Do you sort of have a sense that you wanted to do something a bit different, or was it something about the white ship in particular that sort of particularly grabbed your interest? Mm. Good question. So I, 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 I'm not an academic. I mean, I, I did study uh, modern history, um, but I'm, I, I'm what's known, I think, as a narrative historian. So I'm looking for a cracking story. And then what I tend to do is find, uh, what I like to try and do is find an incident that shows, uh, shines a light really on a whole uh, reign. So that's what I've tried to do. And, and I, the, you're quite right. The previous four books were all on the Stuarts. And, but I'm not a Stuart expert. I'm not actually an expert at all. Um, you're, you're interviewing somebody who's completely bogus <laughs> in terms of historical credentials. I have an MA, but that is it. And um, so I like to go for the story. And in fact, I write, I, I, when I was at university, I had a, um, a, a flatmate called Andrew. And he is somebody who probably reads one book a year on a summer holiday. And I always think, what would Andrew read? If he was going past Smith's at Heathrow, what would he pick up? So uh, I, 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 he's my sounding board, although he doesn't know it. And so I try and write something that, look, look I'm trying. I'm not saying I succeed. I try and write a cracking read and that somebody who, who, who is vaguely interested in history but likes a good true story can get involved in. And the reason I, I fell upon the white ship this time was completely um, through luck. So about five years ago, a wonderful historian who you may have had on actually, um, Alison Weir, uh, ha has a sideline in uh, tours of Great Britain with people from overseas. And she was short of a keynote speaker with three hours notice and asked me if I was free, and I was. And I was given the subject of the Queens of England. And I went down, it was to Leeds Castle. And I, I, I gave this talk and I thought, well, I, I'm going to throw in, they all knew as much as me, if not more, about Anne Boleyn and Victoria and things, uh, and Bodicea. So I thought I'd throw in somebody who should have been queen, but wasn't. And that is actually the sister of the Prince William, who died in the white ship. She's called Matilda. And in fact, she ends up having a very long civil war with King Stephen. But I wanted to throw in this story and I, I, I actually touched upon the white ship. And I think it was the only time the audience came awake. Um, <laughs> the rest of it, they knew off pat. And uh, so I suddenly thought, well, that is a good story. And then about three or four years ago, I happened to look up the white ship. because I've always been intrigued by it, genuinely. It's something I grew up with, finding fascinating. Um, and I suddenly spotted that the 900th anniversary was coming up. Uh, last November and publishers love an anniversary and I love the white ship so that's how it happened uh, so yeah to answer your question I love the story rather than the period mm. that's so, it's so interesting because that's exactly Rex factor to me it's shining a light on these fascinating bits of history that aren't 
as well known, and we don't need a, another Robin Hood movie. You know, there's plenty <laughs> of genuine good stuff that we could go back to. This would make a cracking film. I mean, my, my, my rather glib thing, I'm not very good at doing proposals to publishers, and I was trying to explain why it mattered. And, and actually, I have a very, very intelligent editor, Arabella uh, Pike, who's brilliant, uh, and she was sort of getting it. And I said, look, Arabella, when you take it upstairs, just say it's a cross between Titanic and Game of Thrones with a bit of sliding <laughs> doors thrown in. And she went, okay, and that worked. Blimey, good sales pitch. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the key, the key is to find a story that you can visualize, actually. I, I, my, my long-distant past, I, I was a TV correspondent, and I was taught to write to picture. So it's not just writing a script that holds together. You have to actually illuminate it. And so I think that's what I, that's what I brought to writing to history. I'm not thinking of dry and dusty facts, although hopefully they line up. It's more about driving the narrative so that you are lighting up the imagination of your reader. That, that, that to me is what it's about. And, and actually the writing part, I find really interesting. Research is quite something. And actually I, you touched on earlier, my, my four Stuart books, the joy of this was that there were so few original sources. So there were only nine books I could find that were written at the time that uh, there were chronicles um, that, that covered this. And so then it was a case of looking through them as to who was the most likely to be spot on. This was obviously an earth-shattering event for people, the, the death of the future king of England. Um, and, and, and these chronicles are all written by monks, or one nun actually, but, but by religious people who are determined, because this, this is where their prejudices lie, that God has a hand in everything. And I, and I found it quite interesting, actually. So the boy... William, the youth William, is 17 when he dies. And yes, he's uh, arrogant and flash and has a bunch of quite unsavory hangers on. So they condemn him. They, 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 they're all united in this belief that he must have done something truly appalling. And that's why God drowned him. And I was thinking, you know, I, I don't know if you've Henry V yet, but if Henry V had died at 17, he would have got a pretty bad rap too, because he was a waster who had some pretty dodgy friends. So I try and get away from the propaganda of it. You know, when I was doing the Civil War, the last three were on the English Civil War, you have to really think hard about the testimony of the parliamentarians or the royalists. This time, you have to look very, very sternly at uh, religious folks' interpretation of real events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I definitely, uh, I sympathise mm -hmm. with the, the enjoyment of finding suddenly not so many sources when you're drowning them, because I had the opposite thing. We did, uh, while we were doing the Anglo-Saxon consults, we did uh, a special episode on the Duke of Marlborough. So I went from barely anything on any of them to suddenly just an impossible amount of information. <laughs> yes. <laughs> suddenly you don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Well, I, you see, it's interesting with this, because you've got the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and even that has got several different versions. So, you know, the, I, I, actually the one, the, the one account I found most fascinating because of its detail of the actual shipwreck was by a, 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 an English-born monk who was packed off by his family to a monastery uh, in Normandy. And he was called Orderic Vitalis, catchy name. <laughs> and uh, he ends up writing this incredible uh, account. And, and it's quite clear to me that he met the butcher. There was this man called Barreau, oh. the butcher from Rouen was the sole survivor. He was found the next day. And, and, and I actually, I, 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 look, I'm not a scientist at all, um, but I believe he only survived because of the clothing he was wearing. The, the, the more um, aristocratic people on board, of which there were many, would have been in silks and furs and they would have drowned very quickly. In fact, most of them would have drowned very quickly because nobody knew how to swim. Oh. Um, but he managed to scramble on board a bit of broken mast along with a uh, a great fighting warrior uh, of Henry I's army. And they stayed together for most of the night until it's quite clear that the warrior, a man called de Legle, had, had run out of steam. He got hypothermia and died. But, um, you know, this butcher was wearing goatskin and sheepskin. And even when wet, that will preserve some heat for uh, a human body as long as you're actually out of the water, which he was. So... I, I, I find it so fascinating, but clearly that man became a bit of a, 
a celebrity, you know, to survive something that terrible. Mm. Equally, people thought he was blessed by God. And uh, it's quite clear, or Derek Vitalis must have had a chat with him because the details so fantastic, you know, the, the, the breaking of the oars on this rock. The rock's still there, the key birth rock that did this great damage, of course, and hold the ship. Um, and it was all a, all a most um, terrible accident because essentially the, the, the royal party, the prince and all his hangers-on, got massively drunk and then insisted the crew join in the drinking for several hours. Mm-hmm. And then they left in a, you know, a calm night with a, 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 a wind blowing northwards to Southampton. The journey should have taken 10 or 12 hours. But these drunken crew and drunken passengers suddenly decided that they must really go as fast as they could and try and beat King Henry I's ship back to Southampton, which was never going to happen. And everyone got overexcited. There was a crew of 50, which was massive at this time, of of, of rowers, oarsmen. And they dropped the mast too soon. And the white ship hit the Keyberf rock full on at full pace and went down very well. It spewed out its uh, human cargo very quickly. uh, That's interesting that you say it had oarsmen as well could do we have any idea of the boat itself because i'm a very keen sailor and so in my mind i'm imagining something more akin to drake than a roman thing with oars but i'd have no idea about what the boats look like of this period so if you think of the bayer tapestry those they're adapted viking longboats really and, and, and this is a massive version of that. So if you think, we, we know from the Bayo Tapestry that the Mora, which was William the Conqueror's flagship, had 16 oarsmen on it, and the white ship had 50. So it gives you an idea. And actually, bizarrely, the captain of William the Conqueror's Mora was the father of the white ship's captain. Uh, so very different uh, fates for the two men. One ended up getting huge estates in England for being part of the victorious Norman invasion. And the other survived the initial uh, impact of the ship and, and swum to the butcher and the warrior on the broken mast and said, where's the prince? And they gave him this terrible news. This is the story that really hooked me into this as a child. There was one little rowing boat on the white ship. And, and when it was clearly in desperate trouble, the bodyguards of the prince bundled him into the rowing boat and were heading for shore, which was only a mile away, when the prince heard his half-sister, the Countess of Perche, calling, screaming for help and screaming an insult at the prince for his lack of manhood in not coming to rescue her. And he told the rowing boat uh, men to turn it around. And when they did, they got swamped by people clambering on board trying to save themselves. So they all went down. So it's those little, that is the story of the white ship for me, is the prince could have got away. But of course, how could he turn his back on his sister who was about to drown? God, that's powerful. It is just like the end of Titanic. Yes. And also, I love, see, the other thing about history I love is the little side stories that come out of that. So the Countess of Perche was this, you know, she was an illegitimate daughter of Henry I. Her husband wasn't on the ship. They had two little girls, again, not on the ship. So the husband built a, a, a small oratory somewhere where his daughters could go and remember their mother in a tiny place called La Trappe. And in time, that became the mother house of the Trappist monasteries, which are still all over the world. So that, that is a direct descendant of the disaster of the white ship. As for, uh, I don't know how international your audience is, um, it's the same for St. Bartholomew's, the, the hospital and the church in London. Um, there was a, 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 a very fun-loving courtier of Henry I called Rahir, and he was something of a, a, a court jester. And there wasn't much jesting to be done when the court was digesting the terrible news of this tragedy. Uh, so many people had lost close relatives in the court. So Rahir went to Rome uh, on, 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 on a pilgrimage which he had long promised himself. And Rome at that time was rife with malaria. And Rahir got malaria and was about, he thought he was going to die. And he had this vision of St. Bartholomew coming to see him. And he did a deal that if St. Bartholomew could save his life, he would build a church and a hospital at a particular point near Smithfield in London. 
And when Rahir got back to England, uh, Henry I allowed him to do it. So, you know, the longest functioning hospital in England uh, and that wonderful church at St. Bartholomew's, they're, they're also direct descendants of this tragedy. Cool. Wow. Yeah, because, I mean, that's the, um, the thing interesting, sort of reading the book and the, the fact that it's not, obviously, the most important death is obviously of the, the son and the impact that has on the dynasty. But like you said, there's the whole court. There's so many nobles, countesses, and sort of prominent knights, part of the household. It's sort of almost like the First World War in one day or something. It just wipes out this sort of generation of, well, the next generation, I suppose. Yeah, you're right. And it was very, the impact was immediate. So one of the people who died was the Earl of Chester, a young favourite of the uh, royal family, whose family controlled the sort of Cheshire borders. I mean, in fact, they're the ancestors of the Dukes of Westminster. Now they're Groveners, essentially. Um, and he drowned. And that that ignited a, a war in Wales because his, he had been the one holding the Welsh down in that part. So mm. these were really powerful people who, who drowned. And Henry I, you know, his style of kingship was very novel. Um, he, he was incredibly focused and he knew what mattered. And one of the things he was very keen on when he took over in 1100, he's the one who succeeded William Rufus after his brother William Rufus was killed in a hunting accident. Um, He he was young and he had few friends and he had to, first of all, stamp out the power of some of the nobility. And he never really trusted the great noble houses. And instead, he raised what we would view as a sort of middle-class bureaucracy as a parallel uh, form of uh, royal government, uh, who were much more dependent on the king. They didn't; that their, their entire power rested on the king's favour. And so, uh, several of these key men also drowned on the white ship. Hmm. So, it's this whole sort of regime then is kind of challenged. Not just the future of the dynasty, but the actual how to govern at the time is thrown into chaos as well. Yes. So he lost a total of three children: the prince and and, and two illegitimate ones. And nieces, and, and and the whole the whole structure of monarchy at this time would have been an, an extenuation of the uh, royal power directly, and then, as I mentioned, the, the bureaucracy. And he lost his two greatest warriors, uh, some priests and favourites, and you touched on it earlier, but an enormous number of um, leading noble women. Um, Eighteen uh, ladies died on this ship of the rank of countess and above. And all of this, you know, when we say three, it was 300 passengers and 50 crew who died. Those 300 passengers were, were, I know it sounds like a terrible cliche, but they were the flower of the Anglo-Norman aristocracy and bureaucracy. And it was, you know, it was really tough. I mean, I think it goes back in, in terms of the chronicler's view. How could this have happened to Henry I? And they looked at various things that he might have done wrong. One was he had married this, uh, as soon as he became king, he married this young uh, princess of Scotland, Matilda of Scotland, who was actually half English. She was descended from Alfred the Great. So that was seen as a very good match. But uh, although they were meant to be in love, uh, that's what the chroniclers said, and who knows, uh, there was this problem, which uh, was that this princess Matilda had been seen uh, in uh, the, the, the clothes of a religious person in a nunnery. And therefore, she should have been excluded from uh, something in the in, in, in the non-religious world. You know, essentially, she would have been seen to have sworn her future to God, and and somehow she had uh, gone back on that word. Now there was a council which found on her side, but quite reluctantly, they only did it because the king really wanted it. <laughs> and um, so that was seen as a possible reason for this thing, and and then uh, this disaster. And another one was that Henry I was never meant to be king after William Rufus. It was meant to go to another brother called Robert Curthose, the eldest brother. There had been a deal done that if William Rufus died without children, uh, Robert Curthose would take over. But Robert Curthose was on the first crusade, returning from the first crusade when all this went on, and Henry dived in and scooped the prize of England and then later defeated Robert Curthose and took Normandy as well. So if you were religious and looking for God's wrath, there were a couple of candidates for why... Yeah. this descended on Henry at this time. 
Might Henry himself have had any sort of thoughts like that? Because one of the quotes I enjoyed from the book was sort of a typically gruff one from William Rufus, who was quite a favourite character for us when we did our first series, but when there was a crew that was quite nervous about taking him across the sea. And then he says, I've never heard of a king who was drowned at sea. And he makes them do it because he's so sure. Well, obviously, God wouldn't let this happen. So do you think... I know. Well, well done picking that out. I really enjoyed putting that in because it shows the the concept of the medieval mind that, that, and later, but that, that if you were, um, if you underwent a coronation, you were removed from being an ordinary human being into something with a, you know, touched by God, literally by, by, by the, the sacred anointing, etc. So I think it was incomprehensible that somebody could have something so humdrum as drowning happen to them. You know, there, there were a lot of shipwrecks at this time. And if you were shipwrecked, you'd, you'd essentially had it unless you were thrown on the shore. Because as I mentioned very briefly earlier, really no one knew how to swim. I mean, the only people that I can find who knew how to swim were those who inhabited harbors, whose jobs were connected with retrieving fishing nets or whatever. No, no, nobody swam for pleasure and, and, and they avoided uh, bathing too much as well. So uh, this was a huge shock to people. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I really enjoy seeing that. I, I enjoy finding things that connect the past to, uh, to now. The fact that the Queen Matilda, who I've mentioned before, the princess from Scotland, you know, that, that, that the area of the city of London called Queen Hive is named after her. It was given to her as part of her dowry when she became queen so she could have an income from the the trade going on in that part of the city of London. And, and she built various bridges, which are still with us, and, and, a, and a, a leper colony that's now a church. And, you know, the fact that something happened 900 years ago like that, the, 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 the roots of it are still with us today in so many areas. Yeah, and you can touch those same things. It's magic. It really does feel like time travel. I love it. But I, I, love it. I think it's, that's part of it for me, history. I mean, you know, I, I, I think part of what I try and get across is, yeah, this all happened hundreds, you know, usually for me, 400 years ago, uh, this time 900 years ago. But look at this, you know, the cruelty may have been different, although it still carries on in, in the world. Um, but the level of cruelty was very extraordinary. Uh, but essentially, the, the, the passions and the uh, triumphs and disasters of human beings will, will, of course, never change. Mm. Um, something which I thought was quite interesting going about the book, obviously, it's sort of centered around uh, the white ship but it feels like in many ways it's a book about henry the first um and you describe him as one of the great monarchs of british history so i sort of wondered whether that was always the focus or whether he kind of came to sort of dominate your thinking he's obviously someone that you've got quite a lot of respect for as a king yes well i do think he's he's really i mean i so it's very interesting this because i i, I know the, the the way of your podcast and what i would say is I don't think Henry I was a very nice man at all, <laughs> but that made him a very, very effective uh, 12th century monarch because there was no point in being, well, look, look, at, look at who he followed. He followed William Rufus, who, who, who your, your followers will know was, was highly entertaining, um, <laughs> but, but not a, I mean, he was a very brave soldier, which I think is why William the Conqueror left England to him he was the son who was most likely to hang on to this new prize of England because he was a thuggish soldier, really. Um, but he had no interest in the church, which was, of course, hugely important at this time, the church controlling 25%, owning 25% of England, and the church becoming more and more vociferous, you know, from the 18, sorry, from the 1070s, when you have the Gregorian reforms going on, suddenly the popes are making their power felt again after a long vacuum. Uh, they say that's one of the reasons the Crusades were started, so the Pope could uh, grab a hold over the European aristocracy and royalty again. But William the Rufus wasn't remotely interested in any of that side of things, and Henry I was clever enough to realise that you had to have the church on side. Um, he also, Henry I, had a very clear view of money and its importance, the economy underpinning monarchy. It would be a very modern way of saying what he, he felt. So there were two aspects to this. One is he was absolutely determined that the quality of his coinage be maintained. 
And Anglo-Saxon coinage from England had this wonderful reputation of being the purest in Europe, had a very high silver content, and people could rely on it. And Henry I made it very clear to the people who minted his coins, it was essentially licensed out to about 50 or 60 mints around England, that if you mess around with his coinage, uh, he would consider it treason. And there's this rather sort of sad moment in, in, in the 1120s when a lot of these minters of coin are invited for Easter at Windsor Castle. And they think this is going to be marvellous until they have they turn up there and are arrested and are found guilty of tampering with the coinage and have their right hands and their testicles removed. Um, now, this is obviously incredibly harsh, but it goes back to my point. You know, nobody did that again. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, you learn, it sets an example. I actually think at this time you had to be cruel as a king. I hate cruelty, by the way. It's a really very tricky uh, subject, but you had to be cruel because your actual power was limited. Um, you obviously didn't have a police force and, you know, the sheriffs in, in, in each county were uh, a variable quality. But what you could do is frighten people into submission by terrible examples. And, you know, he did, he did very well with that. And he actually, this is the king who set up the exchequer, which we still have today as the cornerstone of our finances. This all started on a giant checkerboard that Henry I and his bureaucrats introduced. They were fed up with the sheriffs from the counties coming to uh, hand over the revenue to the crown and being short. And so on this checkerboard, there was no hiding place. This is what you owe in each column, whether it's a penny or a, a crown or a shilling or a pound, whatever it is, or a hundred pounds. Even an innumerate, illiterate sheriff could see what the problem was. And then they were sent home with a, essentially a ruler that had nicks on both sides that were identical. The ruler would be split down the middle, half would be kept by, um, by the king's uh, men, and the other half would be given to the sheriff, and that was what he had to bring back, those divots yeah. on, the, on, the, mm. on, the, on the stick. And, you know, he also produced law. He, he introduced a sort of system of law, which he, he borrowed heavily from the Anglo-Saxons, but he really meant it. And people were very grateful. And, and, and uh, it, of course, is uh, an exaggeration, but it was said at the, the time of Henry I that the law was so strong that a young girl with a purse full of gold could go from one end of the kingdom to the other unmolested. And this is in stark contrast to William Rufus, where the worst dread of most people was the royal court coming to the vicinity because it was a, that was a time of rape and pillage and stealing and ghastliness. You know, people would, villagers would disappear and hide in the forests when the royal court was coming under William Rufus. When Henry came, everything, all the... All the uh, Expenses had been worked out in advance. Every royal officer knew what his entitlement was, and it worked. And this is incredible. But that there is a dark side to this, which is a lot of very nasty stuff went on to make make this law apply. Hmm. I sympathise. I'm a big Edward the First fan, and I can I find ways to forgive him for all his sins. But he sounds like I totally agree. I love Edward I. He was my favourite one, actually, when I was at university. Yes, me too. <laughs> I ended up uh, doing my dissertation on how his uh, how his crusades influenced his castle design in North Wales. Oh, that's a brilliant idea. Well, you see, I think there is a very strong correlation between these two men, which was that they they meant business, <laughs> and you needed to mean business to a stay alive and 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 b make sure you had some influence. Yeah, absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, 
it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. And Henry I did actually score um, very highly when we reviewed him because we scored them on a number of uh, different factors. So sort of battliness, um, where obviously he does very well, scandal, as you said, all those uh, children and quite brutal treatment of moneylenders. Subjectivity, where would you want to be a subject? Maybe not if you're a moneylender, but as you said, all the justice, the reforms and things like that. He rules for a long time. I think it was just the number of legitimate children, ironically, was the thing that... uh, only stopped him being one of the very, very top scorers. Well, I think that's the summation. That's where he slipped up. Um, And and all of those things are true. I I think, you know, to have a king who really was an opportunist, when he took the throne, before he became king of England in the summer of 1100, he was really not very important at all. And he was much underestimated. His eldest brother, as I mentioned, got Normandy. His second brother got uh, England, the third brother died in another hunting accident, actually. And so he ends up as the fourth son, probably destined for a bishopric somewhere. Um, They called him Beauclerk, which was a sort of uh, nickname, essentially meaning he was a swat in old-fashioned terms. You know, know, it, it says something for the state of academic excellence in the upper classes and royalty of this time, that he was thought impossibly intelligent because he could read, he couldn't write. Um, and, uh, but, but he was a, he was being trained for something different. And there's this wonderful story uh, of William the Conqueror lying, dying on his deathbed for a very long time. Henry I, his most loyal and dutiful son looking after him. And William explains that he's not going to get Normandy, he's not going to get England, he's going to get uh, 3,000 marks of silver. And Henry goes, well, that's a bit, insufficient you know can't have a bit more and then William the Conqueror says to him um according to the chroniclers and of course this could have been embellished uh says well you you mustn't worry because one day you'll be greater than both your brothers and very few people saw this he was quite eccentric um so hunting was a very noble pastime at this time you know it was essentially a training for war uh seeing how courageous you were on horseback etc uh, not that I'm sure that the stags and boars saw it that way, but there we are. <laughs> and um, he was, Henry, as a young man, was really interested in the finer points of hunting. He wasn't interested in it as a grand aristocratic spectacle. He used to go into the woods by himself with his own pack of hounds and, and a trumpet and lead them off and go and do things in the countryside. And people in the upper echelons of society thought, it was a bit in for a dig. This wasn't really appropriate for a, a member of the royal family. It was something that, you know, a game warden might do. Um, so a lot of people really underestimated him. And I think he was incredibly clever. So one of the other things he did, he was a great diplomat. And he used the fact that he had all these illegitimate children as trades in diplomacy. Uh, one daughter is married to um, the, the King of Galloway, sort of the Picts in, 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 in sort of Dumfrieshire area. Um, and then he, they're married, they're dotted around Europe uh, in, in, in successful marriages of diplomacy. And I also like, actually, as a human being, I like the fact that, okay, he had all these illegitimate children, whatever you think of that. It was quite normal for uh, royal and aristocratic men at this time to wander around having affairs. It's, it, it was considered uh, totally normal. But I, what I like about Henry is that he happily acknowledged his children because uh, there's a lot of these men just did terrible things to women and then moved on and then said, well, that's your bad luck. And I rather like the fact that he said, actually, yeah, I remember that. And that is my child and I'll look after him or her. Yeah, so it's yeah, the fact that he's got the record isn't necessarily because he was so unusually prodigious. It's just that he actually acknowledges where he's... He kept the score, and I think there are a lot of the others who didn't, you know. And 
and there's something wonderful about him in many many areas actually i but but going on the family thing the, the one thing that is is impossible for me when you're dealing with henry the first because it, i mentioned he's not a very nice man so the worst bit is um uh his rigid adherence to the rules of the time and one of his daughters uh joanna he married to a uh, a french aristocrat to try and bring peace to a certain area and he made his son-in-law and joanna um swap children with their neighbors who they were constantly fighting with as hostages to to bring that part of france to a a, a quiet place um but unfortunately joanna lost her temper with the boy who was her hostage and had him blinded and the outraged father went to henry the 1st and said well you know the rules and unbelievably henry the 1st gave permission for his two granddaughters to be blinded as well in re- in retaliation and as a further thing because they were the wrong party to have their noses cut off and i think I, there's no way I can get my head around that on any level because he was so powerful. You know, why didn't he compensate the 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 the, the blinded boy and his family with huge possessions or whatever? How could you ever have your granddaughters blinded? It's sort of unbelievable, really. Gosh, God, that's sobering, isn't it? <laughs> but you see, what it was, it was just those are the rules. That's what we, I mean. You know, that's what we do, and 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 he was sort of. And then, understandably, his daughter Joanna tried to kill him. She she whipped out a crossbow and missed. Um, but uh, you would, wouldn't you? I mean, it's 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 an astonishing. I mean, talk. You know, Game of Thrones is nothing compared to this. Really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, in terms of wow. his um, reputation, because as to say, he's such a an effective, and and he's there for you know thirty five years as well. It's a long time. Do you think the White Ship disaster is part of why he doesn't have a greater reputation? Do you think it's sort of well, I mean, he ca- carries on for a good time afterwards, but obviously with what comes after he dies and the anarchy with Stephen and Matilda, and the fact that actually just before the White Ship disaster was in many ways the triumph where he defeated uh, the French and William Cleto, his nephew. So do you think perhaps the White Ship is the reason that he doesn't rank higher? It is, because um, essentially the first duty of a king in this time was to produce a solid male heir. Uh, whatever we may think of that, that was the that was the basis, and he knew that. So most of his illegitimate children that I can date, you know, and there are probably others we don't even know about, but but, but you know, these are the ones he 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 knew were his. Most of them were before he got married, and there were obviously some after. But I don't know what happened to him. You know, he he married this. Um, I don't want to be luckiest at all, but this this famously beautiful second wife. Just a couple of months after the White Ship, she was known as the Fair Maid of Brabant, uh, Queen Adeliza, and she was sort of young. And we know she was fertile because, although uh, fertile is a terrible, you know what I mean. Though. Yeah. Um, yeah. We know she was able to have children because after Henry's death, she married somebody else and had six children. So the, the fault, the biological fault, seems not to have been with her. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, I'm not not a psychiatrist, of course, but I wonder if he was fundamentally depressed and yeah. you know impotent or whatever or maybe he was ill and sterile we don't know but it is extraordinary she was kept at his side i mean it really is like a sort of um if i say fertile it, i'm afraid she was treated like a sort of brood mare really mm-hmm. um she was kept at his side uh, to try and make things happen but nothing happened so the white ship was the end of the glory years. Um, he had 20 years of unbelievable success. You know, out of all the great princes of Europe, he was the first one to come to an accommodation with the papacy over the thing called, called the investiture crisis, which is basically, who does a bishop owe their allegiance to? And the Pope was saying, it has to be God. And the kings and princes of Europe were saying, no, it, you know, they're taking land. Uh, and they are basically lords as well, and they're part of my um, Episcopal aristocracy, I suppose. And what um, Henry was clever enough to see, this is not an impossible situation. Uh, As a bishop, they can be obedient uh, to the Pope and to to the Pope's God. Um, But as princes or lords of my territory, they, for their lands and castles, they are beholden to me. And that is an incredibly 
clever and practical and, and fair way of looking at it, actually. And, 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 and he avoided the great crises that some of his contemporary rulers ran into because they would not concede. I mean, that's, that's one thing I really enjoy in the book, actually, like you say, the fact that it's sort of a narrative history and you really do get a sense of the characters of the lot of the key players, and particularly when you've got the brothers growing up together, you know, you've got Rufus, like you said, this just a very sort of blunt, thuggish, quite effective, but not the most sympathetic chap. Kurtos, who brave, but just doesn't seem to be a chap that can ever get things going his way. Yeah. Um, but Henry does always seem to have something different about him. He's clearly got that yeah. certain something, as we call it. He's really impressive. I mean, I, I like, there's a sort of description of how his court operates and it's, it's high statecraft and uh, considerations of government, etc. in the morning and then, you know, relaxed lunch and then some sort of entertainment in the afternoon or whatever. But he was focused but I think he enjoyed the finer things. As well. I'm, not, not, I'm not sort of talking about the, the womanizing but you know, whether it was um, culture or ideas, he, he was actually, uh, in one sense, he was intellectual in that he liked talking to very learned people and, and questioning. And, and I, so maybe he couldn't write, but he did have an inquiring mind. And that's not necessarily the case for a great ruler. It's an, it's an add-on. You know, William the Conqueror, brilliant, uh, as his name suggests, in the battlefield, but never managed to learn English. He found it too difficult and didn't really have time for it. You know, he, he, he was just charging around. Um, well, that's too simplistic, but he, he had a very tricky upbringing and then had this incredible gamble which paid off in taking England. And, you know, we, we think of 1066 being the end of it, but there was an awful lot of people, Scandinavian uh, princes who were looking at England thinking, well, I'll, I'll take it next. So he was at war. Uh, a lot. Now, Henry I was at war, but he was clever enough to close off the North. He, he, he was always on very good diplomatic relations with his brothers-in-law, who became kings of Scotland. He had three of them who were kings of Scotland during his time. And he made sure that he was able to look after his interests in the South, particularly Normandy, because there was no problem in the North. He settled England. He wouldn't have been able to hold on to Normandy uh, if he had had trouble at home or, or coming from the north. So I think it was an incredibly strategic mind he had and um, he uh, uh, and an effective way of doing things. Going back to his personality, though, he had no sense of humour, which is, is quite tricky. And um, there's one poor man, uh, a young knight, who wrote a ditty about Henry I and his sex life. And he was sentenced to blinding and castration. And understandably, took, took the way out of banging his head against his cell wall till he killed himself so he wouldn't have to go through all of that. Uh, but when people oh. said to him, for goodness sake, you know, you can't sentence somebody to that terrible punishment just because they've joked about you. And Henry said, well, I, I need people to respect me as king and duke. I can't have me being ridiculed. Wow. That shows, yeah. And that, and it, that story and his, the story about his grandmother is just tell you everything you need to know about justice at the time and and his personality his ruthlessness. I think so I think it's just this sort of straightforward thinking that if I don't do this it's only going to get worse and and you, you touched on Robert Curthis the older brother he was too nice I think and um too generous to his supporters didn't understand the value of money they said that he was the one sort of man in court who didn't know the value of a horse or a hound and um I, I think that totally undermined his ability to be uh, an effective Duke of Normandy because he, he didn't have the control. It's about control at this time. And, and I'm afraid some of the control had to come from terror. Uh, and people celebrated. There's, there's one image in my book of, I think it's 50 people being hanged, robbers being hanged. People were thrilled with that because they felt safe. I know it's, it sounds appalling to us, but People, your average person and your average wealthy person wanted stability and they were prepared to put up with a very harsh regime in, in return for uh, safety in, in their day-to-day -day life. I guess, yeah, I suppose we don't, it's, we'd probably make similar decisions, I guess, to, because we don't have to think about it. 
I don't have to think about our safety in quite the same way. Like really, that was just everything. It was, and that's the chroniclers are very keen on this too. They see it as a um, almost a divine duty. You know, this is part of what you take on board when you are uh, crowned. Is that you have to be? I, I think actually what came through is. The, the God these people are thinking of is very much an Old Testament mm. God of fury and vengeance and, and strength. There's, there's not really, it's not, it's not a lot of um, uh, gospel uh, evangelist uh, sort of Acts of Apostles type of thing with stories of Jesus. It's really not. It's, it's a big, bold, terrifying God they were thinking of. Now, one of the um, sort of most significant consequences of the white ship is that <clears throat> we ultimately end up with uh, Henry, as you said, he didn't have a child by his second wife. So we almost get England's first uh, queen regnant uh, with his daughter, Matilda. It's quite interesting the fact that he actually goes to the point of saying it will be my daughter. He doesn't pick one of his uh, various nephews or try to have an illegitimate son crowned. He does actually say, no, it's it's my daughter. Uh, why do you think, is, is that an unusual thing for the time that he did that? Do you think there's a reason particularly why Henry was determined that it would still be his child? Yes. So essentially my book's about the 90 years from 1066 and so much changed in terms of legitimacy during that period. Uh, William the Conqueror was not known as the Conqueror until 300 years after he died. He was known by those brave enough to talk about him behind his back as William the Bastard, because he was the illegitimate son of the Duke of Normandy and the daughter of a tanner, uh, somebody who dealt in leather. And this was extraordinary, really. Uh, Even then, that was considered a a slight handicap because William the Conqueror's father died young when returning from the Holy Land. And this young boy had various uh, guardians that... Uh, his father had appointed to look after him. And these were great aristocrats of of northern France, as we know it. And they were bumped off one by one uh, by people who wanted to control the little boy, the little illegitimate boy. And it's incredible that William the Conqueror survived. There's almost a sort of band of brothers aspect to this, of young men who who, who look after him and, 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 and... the romantic notion would be that they all ride to ultimate victory at Hastings. But, you know, there were, there were some who were with him throughout all of it. But um, I touched on the papal reforms of the 18... Uh, uh, sorry, I keep saying 18. I can tell my I'm out of period. <laughs> of, the, of, the 10, of the 1070s, uh, Pope Gregory brought in these fundamental point backs to what the Bible was about. And one of them was the insistence on legitimacy, i.e. being born in wedlock. And this was to tighten up the church's control on society because, of course, marriage is through the offices of the church. And so by the time Henry I had all his illegitimate sons, uh, because we are dealing in a, in, a, in a male society at this time, they weren't able to put themselves forward as potential rulers. The most impressive of them is a man called Robert of Gloucester, who was the eldest illegitimate son of Henry I. And he has a lot of the qualities of his father and of his grandfather, William the Conqueror. And he's a, he's a magnificent soldier. And he builds up extraordinary power on both sides of the channel. And ultimately, he, he supports his half-sister, Matilda, when she comes over in 1138 to claim the throne from uh, her cousin, Stephen. Um, but he, 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 people put it to him, couldn't you think about putting yourself forward. And he says, well, of course I can't. You know, he knows he's ruled out because the church had by this, you know, in those 50 years or so, had really established quite a lot of power. And um, people, you know, excommunication really meant a lot. And and there's no way the Pope would leave you unexcommunicated if you grab the throne as as an illegitimate person. And it's it's sad for Matilda. Um, It shows the genderist attitudes at the time, if I can put it in that way, that Henry never saw her as the direct descendant, more as a a successor who was going to hold the fort until her sons, who the eldest one would become Henry II, had grown into a a sort of uh, an age where they could take the throne. 
And it says a lot about the, um, the presence and the power of Henry I, that when he got all of his great men, religious and military and noble, uh, together and made them swear in public that they would support Matilda to the succession, everyone was wanting to be first in the line to say, yes, yes, we agree. But it meant nothing when the king actually died. So there was a great congregation of nobility and, and, and churchmen down the road from where I am, just five miles from here at Northampton Castle, now a gleaming train station, and, 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 and then another one in Normandy, where all, everyone said, yes, she will be. But as soon as the king died, famously after eating a surfeit of lampreys, rather too many eels, essentially, um, Stephen rushed across the channel, as I mentioned at the beginning, and, and took the throne. And Matilda was left flat-footed in Normandy. And she, she hung on to Normandy. She had a very able husband, uh, Geoffrey of Anjou. But it took an enormous amount of effort to get her party uh, into gear to fight for her in England. And it only really came about at all when King Stephen began to show that he really was a, a very weak king. And order was going out the window. And people looked back with misty eyes at the, at the great uh, order that Henry I had imposed on the land and hoped that maybe his daughter could bring it back too. Um, but essentially, the, the instant amnesia of people when, when Henry died to their oaths is, is extraordinary, really. They just, <laughs> they just shrugged their shoulders and said, well, Stephen can have a go. He was quite a popular, popular guy. He was a good warrior, and they thought he might do the job. And he was a man. So they thought, well, that's, that's what <laughs> kings are meant to look like. <laughs> He's one of our worst kings, isn't he? I don't know if you have a poll yeah. for that, but I, I put in a bid. Yeah, I would too. Yeah, we should do at some point. We need to do an official one. He's definitely a definitely a strong candidate. Um, just a couple of sort of questions, actually, bringing us back to the um, present day. If people have heard of the white ship, they might have done so because it's been in the news recently. You've been involved um, <clears throat> in a project looking at whether it's possible to find uh, the wreckage of the white ship. Um, what are we able to tell us about what's going on there and how that's progressing? Yeah, um, I was on a boat with some uh, divers and, and archaeologists uh, a few months ago uh, in June. And we went to look. They dived off the Keyberf Rock in Barfleur, off Barfleur, where we know the vessel uh, went down. And they found, it's still on the bottom because it didn't have a, a, a license to take it up, a, a three or four meter long piece of wood, which according to first sight does look very, very ancient, in the right place. Now, the people I, I went with, I, I, they're, they're the experts. They got terribly excited. But I, I will only accept that as the, a 900-year-old piece of vessel once scientists have properly looked at it. It would be fantastic to find a piece of it. I, I would love it. Uh, but I'm naturally cautious about these sorts of things. I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I have no idea. Um, it's in the right place. Uh, I suppose quite a lot of ships might have gone down on that point because it, it's a massive rock which is covered at high tide. But it would be uh, there's nothing that gave me greater pleasure than seeing any part of that ship preserved for people to remember. You know, to see a tangible reminder of the greatest maritime disaster that this country's ever known. I'm I'm so with you though I'm I'm de I definitely lean towards the enthusiast I'd be claiming it straight away <laughs> but already you know the, of all the boats in the world it's already gone down to just those ones that have sunk there it really could be I got this sort of um, Spitfires in Burma feeling about oh, it I yes. can't oh, those yeah. ones that are buried yeah, yeah. I just I, I, I fly me there I'd, I'd, I'll <laughs> man a shovel <laughs> yes that would be fantastic all in their kit form aren't they They're yeah yes. yeah perfectly preserved. Oh, I mean, if nothing else, I'm a I'm a really keen um, like scale modeler. I don't know if you can see. I've got airfix oh, up yes. there. There's endless discussion on websites about exact uh, paint color schemes and stuff. And it, all of this is can just immediately prove. I don't know the construction methods of that boat, or the, you know, the, in my instance, that. But we know. Schemes. Luckily, we do know the construction methods because, as I mentioned, it was it, these ships didn't evolve at this time. It was exactly the same uh, construction as in the Bayo Tapestry. And you can see how they're made because they do the whole, uh, they show it in, 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 in panels oh, yeah. on the Bayo. So, so that, that's what got these people excited was that their metalwork looked 
look correct. Mm. But you know, who knows? I I I, I don't I, I'm not a, a pessimist or an optimist. I'm a realist. And and, and until somebody goes, that is from eleven hundred and uh there we are, then then I'll then I'll be delighted. But in the meantime, how I would I would love nothing more than to find mm. anything to do with that ship. So we know that the, the big thing that was on there, apart from the human cargo, was the royal treasure chest. But that logged lodged itself in the Keyboard Rock and was recovered the next day. So that's oh. but that's the other one actually. And of course, it's been in the papers the last few days. It's, uh, it's King John's treasure and, and the wash. I, mm. I grew up near the wash, and, and just every day I'd look out there and think, well, it must be there, and it's worth a dig, you know. <laughs> yeah, that'd be amazing. And finally, on a similar note, um, obviously a few years ago, we very famously had the discovery of Richard III under a car park uh, in Leicester. And there have also been talks about um, Henry III, because you um, put in the book that it's sort of sad and wrong that his tomb is buried and we don't know exactly uh, where he is. Obviously, it was at Reading Abbey, but that's not all uh, there now. Do you think it's possible that we might also find Henry I? Yeah, it looks like, and this this is not me, but local experts sort of, it's very unlikely he was ever moved and he would have been buried because he founded Reading Abbey, um, dedicating it in part to the son he lost uh, in the white ship. It, it seems he, he's probably under the extension of a Victorian school. And there is a tablet there saying that near this spot is Henry Beauclerk, whatever. Now, look, you know, I think it would be, I, I, it's, it's so awkwardness. I don't think Henry I intended to be anywhere else except in Reading Abbey. And I think he assumed it would go on forever. And it was magnificent. It was one of the great abbeys north of the Alps. Would he want to be under the extension of a Victorian school? I, I don't think so, actually. And that's no, that's no disrespect to the school, which is, is charming. But I, I think a king of the note worthiness that we've touched on in this uh, podcast, I think we have to accept that he he probably should be in somewhere like Westminster Abbey. Mm, definitely. Place where he was crowned, the place where, which is so associated with the Norman Conquest and, and where the great kings are. This is a great king. Horrible man in many ways, but I stay with the great king because he is, he, 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 in, he's certainly in my top 10 for the kings and queens of England. Yeah. Where did, where did we end up having him, Graham? When I was, do you remember? He's in the score. He was definitely in the top 10 for the scores. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Henry the Second got the best overall. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's good. I love Henry the Second. I managed to get to him at the end. I love a man who has such a bad temper that when somebody compliments the King of Scotland, he's so jealous he chews his mattress. Now that, <laughs> that is that. Yeah. yeah, so good. Yeah. You deserve oh, a place for that, really, alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was. Um, uh, I was um, going around Dover Castle in the summer. I was due to be doing a recording with Graham. Sorry, once again, Graham got stuck. The tides are against us. Um, uh, and I, exactly, that, it was the first thing that came to mind. I was walking around, I was looking for little teeth marks on the re- replica furniture, see if anyone had thrown in an Easter egg. <laughs> but, uh, oh, no, it's, yeah, they're a fascinating lot, those Plantagenets. Well, they thought they were descended. People said they were descended from the devil's daughter, didn't they? And that's why they had that temper. But, um, right. Yeah, they are brilliant. And, and, and actually, so if I, somebody said to me, what would happen if the white ship hadn't have sunk? And bearing in mind that that boy would have become king and had his own dynasty. And essentially, I think we'd have become a much quieter nation in the North Sea, really. Mm. And probably with no Hundred Years War for us, because we wouldn't have been involved in all the Plantagenet uh, mm. machinations in France, as we know it now. And equally, we might have got to the um, Reformation sooner as a sort of northern country. But, um, that I, you know, those are the what-ifs of history, but it, it, it's what didn't happen. And, I, and you think if the white ship hadn't sunk, you wouldn't have, uh, and that boy had, had children, you wouldn't have had Richard the Lionheart or mm. Magna Carta or, or any, you know, or so much wouldn't have happened. And it's extraordinary that it was all down to a, a shipping accident on one night in, in 901 years ago. It's sort of astonishing, really. Yeah, we could so easily have been drawn into that sort of Scandinavian sphere of influence and had that uh, instead of the Euro- mainland European one. Absolutely. Well, you know, the, 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 we, we frequently married into the, 
the, the Danes, etc. I mean, you know, I, I think you're right. We would have been a more Scandinavian um, and, and, and Hanseatic trading nation. Um, you know, sort of, I think we'd have gone in a different, uh, we'd have had a different uh, center to the hub, really. Mm. Oh, it's all fascinating. What if? So we'll uh, we'll look forward with uh, we'll be optimists and look forward to the white ship and Henry oh. the First uh, coming back out. Um, thank you so much, uh, Charles, for speaking to us. Um, it's absolutely um, fascinating topic. It's a really great book. I said it's a really good read uh, on Henry the First on the white ship disaster. It's a really great, succinct uh, history of the Dukes of Normandy as well. Uh, the start that I really enjoyed. So anyone who's enjoyed listening to this should uh, definitely check that out. Thank you both. Yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. I, I, just as a, a postscript, I am Andrew, essentially. And if, and you, you are old flatmate. And, uh, and you've succeeded. I'm going to get it. I'll get the copy and I'm going to read it now. Now that I can, now that I don't have to do the purposeful ignorance, I can actually have a read of it. <laughs> Sounds great. Okay. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye bye. So that was uh, The White Ship. Charles Spencer and uh, something of a return to uh, King Henry the First. You know what surprised me about that was, well, it didn't surprise me how much I'd forgotten about it, but the, <laughs> I had once again neglected to remember quite the impact that that had on all history. Mm. That one ship meant that we sort of took a completely different path. Very, very, very interesting. Could have saved us King Stephen. That'd be nice. Hmm. Uh, anyway, that was uh, Charles Spencer and the White Ship. Um, it's a brilliant book as well. So if you want to uh, to read it, it is called uh, The White Ship: Conquest, Anarchy, and the Wrecking of Henry the First's Dream. But thank you very much to uh, Earl Spencer for giving us time to do that, and to Sarah who helped us organise it. Indeed. Uh, anyway. Let us know what you thought about it. If you've got any uh, thoughts or questions about the white ship, uh, get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page on email, rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. Uh, and if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use and donate monthly to join the Privy Council. Get lots of bonus content at www.patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. And we've got some Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. S. Durney. Dominic Conquest, Kate Parkinson, MMS Remans, She Who Is Many, Cassie Shilday, Kay Fleming, Stevie Diane, Kirsten Mosqua, Tyler 105 Bay, and Lisa. Nice. That's You see, I'd try and go with just my name. <laughs> Lisa. Get, you know, nab, nab that for anyone else, any other Lisas come along sniffing around the name. And uh, that completes our shout-outs from Podbean. Uh, and we've got to say a happy birthday to Matthew Jeffrey. Oh, this is us now. Yes. Okay. <laughs> happy birthday, Jeffrey. Matthew Jeffrey. Matthew Jeffrey. That's just one person called Matthew. <laughs> well, I tell you, Matthew what, Jeffrey Jonathan. All happy birthday. Well, happy birthday to both of you. Um, that's unfair, isn't it? When they play around, two first names. Yeah. So Matthew Jeffrey, happy birthday, but wind it in. <laughs> Uh, so that's all from us. Hopefully you enjoyed the interview. As I said, if you did and you found it interesting, then do check out Charles' book, The White Ship, Conquest, Anarchy, and the Wrecking of Henry the First Dream. Uh, the next episode that we will be doing is a special episode on the Royal Society. Oh, yes, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, we'll then have another one of our messages and previews episodes before getting back to the consorts with Joan of Navarre, Queen Consort of Henry the Fourth. Brilliant. See you next time. Joe. Yeah.